used to that. Um, with the, such a build-up, your expectations might be too high. <laughs> I've been asked to talk about Buddhism and meditation. So the two, of course, are together. But I'll say something about Buddhism first and then tell you something about meditation. People often ask, is Buddhism a religion? Is it a philosophy? Is it a psychology? Or is it a practice? Well, it's all of it. You can take your pick, whichever one you like. For Westerners, it's usually a practice. And that's all that interested me when I first heard about it. That there was a path laid out in all its details with all causes and effects and methods. I was looking for a methodology and there it was. Methods galore. All you had to do is pick them and see which one suited you best. Methods for what? For purification of one's own inner being, purification of emotion, purification of thought, and the methods of meditation for peace and inner joy. That's exactly what I was looking for. I didn't care whether it was called Buddhist or not, to tell you the truth. I didn't care what it was called. I wanted to know how to do it. And the reason I'm telling you this is because I think everybody wants to know how to do it. It's very nice to be told that some things ought to be done. But it's always a question how am I going to go about it? Now, I have read books in the past, many books, by spiritual teachers, great sages, who said exactly what I would have liked to also say, but they didn't say how to get there. And my re reaction to, was, to that always was, isn't it wonderful for him or her? But how am I going to do this? And therefore, for me, Buddhism is a practice path. Obviously, when I'm in Asia, and I've spent the last 10 years in Sri Lanka, I have a nunnery there which I founded, built up from donations from uh, my students, where I live. Obviously there, the religion creeps in. Some of the rituals and some of the expectations of the populace that have to be accommodated. I always do the minimal of that and teach the how-to. And to now come to this, what fascinated me about the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha said, there's only one thing I teach, and that's suffering and its end to reach. 
Now, in this translation, it doesn't come out quite right. He doesn't teach suffering. What he teaches is that there is suffering. That, in actual fact, we all take part in it. And we dislike it. We dislike anything that is not pleasant. But he promises to show us a way out. Now that has to be understood correctly. And I'm actually now telling you the goal of the practice path, the end of it. Now, obviously, we have to take all the steps, but I'll tell you the end now and then tell you the steps about how to get there, or at least some of them. We don't have enough time for everything, I don't think. He doesn't say ever that suffering in the world will ever stop. That's impossible. We're all going to get old and older, we all have diseases, which just means, in some cases, dis-ease, unease. It doesn't have to be something really dramatic, although we've all been sick and we'll probably get something again, even if it's only a cold or a toothache, and we're all going to die. And there's no two ways about that. So we have old age, decay, disease, and death. So. With that alone, there is no way that he, he could promise that this would ever stop. But what he promised, and if one practices it, one knows that it's true, that the one who is suffering from all that can stop. And that doesn't mean physical death. That that person who feels he or she is suffering from any of this will no longer do that because the whole inner being and the whole attitude and viewpoint has changed through practice. Now that's the promise. If that attracts one that promise, then one will be interested to find out how to do it. And I would say that that would be the only valid approach. How am I going to do this? What does it mean for me personally? So the first thing that he talks about are that we can actually find out at a moment's notice that we are not one solid heap like we think we are, but that we are mind and body. And that the body is the servant and the mind is the master. Now we have a servant who may be a good or not such a good servant. Some bodies do better than others. And if they're young, they're usually better servants than when they're old. I certainly can't do what I used to do 20 or 30 years ago, or even 10 years ago. But the servant is being looked after very nicely. It gets decent food, gets a nice night's rest, gets a wash at least once a day, if not more often, nice clean clothes, 
comfortable armchair, comfortable house, with fans when it's hot, with a heater when it's cold, everything there, a car to transport it from home to here or somewhere else, everything there, everything looked after. But the mind is taken for granted. If we were to do exactly for the mind what we're doing for the body, we would have a totally different life. So that's actually the first thing that comes to the forefront, to see that there are two, which are interconnected, obviously, and also interdependent. That goes without saying. But that the more important one is the mind. And that that doesn't get its due. We take it for granted. We let it think all day long, and we let it dream all night long. And then we wonder why. It's tired, it forgets, it gets upset, it gets fearful, anxious, disliking, bored, resisting, rejecting, angry, worried, and all those things. Why shouldn't it? It never has a moment's rest. It never gets any real wonderful health food like we probably would like give the body. We never give it a wash like we wash the body every single day. Why shouldn't it get upset? We would get very upset if the body wasn't treated properly. We also give the body medicine when it's sick. When the mind's upset and worried and fearful, do we have any medicine on hand? What do we do? So the Buddha called the Dhamma, which is uh, his word for the teaching, the medicine. And himself, he was often called the great physician. Obviously not on a physical base, but on the mind base. And also the fact that, he emphasized the fact, that if we have something wrong with our body and we go to the chemist and get a bottle of pills and put that bottle of pills on the mantelpiece and go by there twice or three times a day and say, what a nice bottle, what nice medicine, really pretty pink pills but don't swallow them because we're afraid they're a bit bitter. We're going to be just as sick as we were before. The same with the Dhamma, the teaching. It may be a bit bitter, maybe a bit uncomfortable in the beginning, but we've got to swallow it. We've got, in other words, we've got to do it. Now, in order to see that this is necessary to do, one has to have come to a certain point in one's life, namely to the point in one's life where the material things which we have accumulated, and all of us have, and the relationship material we have accumulated, like families and so forth, friends and acquaintances, everything is there, and yet there is still that inner yearning for something that is totally fulfilling. Now when that, when we realize 
that although everything outwardly looks fine, we haven't any great tragedy that we want to get rid of. And yet, the total inner peace and joy and the fulfillment within are lacking. Then we realize something else needs to be found. In the words of Jesus, man does not live by bread alone. When we've come to that point in our life, then we usually look around a bit. And then it comes to that point where we cannot any longer just believe something because everybody else is believing it, but we want to know how to use it so that it will actually bring inner peace to us. So when we have realized that the mind needs to be looked after, there are two aspects of mind which the Buddha differentiates, and we will understand that immediately. One are our thought processes, what we're thinking, and the other are our emotions. Now, in the Buddha's language, which was Pali at the time, which is a derivative of Sanskrit, was the everyday language. Sanskrit was for the uh, scholars and uh, Pali for the everyday people. Mind has one word, just one word, but it's broken up into these two aspects. So when we speak of mind, we immediately have thinking in our understanding. When we speak of heart, we have feeling, emotion. So that's what we're looking at, heart and mind. Now, he teaches us quite clearly that whatever goes on within ourselves is strictly due to our own reaction. It has nothing to do with the outside occurrence. When we have unpleasant thoughts or feelings, our first inclination is to blame what I call the outside trigger. Somebody said something which I didn't like at all because it wasn't praising me, it wasn't loving me, it wasn't appreciating me, it wasn't even correct, it was stupid, whatever it was. So that's person's fault that I'm now feeling badly and am angry at that person. That's our obvious reaction. But here, it may be helpful to think of the toy that children play with, a little doll, a jack-in-the-box, a little doll that sits on a spring inside a little box, and it has a lid, the box. And the child comes along and touches the lid and the little jack-in-the-box jumps out. Every time the child touches, it jumps out. Now somebody comes along and pulls a little uh, toy, the little doll, out of the box, throws it away. So now the child comes along and takes a hammer and hits it, and nothing jumps out. This is a jack-in-the-box. Whatever is in there jumps out. 
it hasn't got anything to do with who hits it. As long as it's there, it's going to jump out. And some people only need to be touched lightly, and others need to be touched a little stronger. But whatever it is, it can only jump out because it's sitting in here. And that's the first understanding we get about our purification. It is possible to get rid of that jack-in-the-box. But only one when we finally have seen that it's to our own detriment when we let that little jack-in-the-box hop around at the slightest provocation. The provocations are innumerable and unending. The world just isn't the way we would like it to be. If we had any say in the matter, any say at all, would be paradise, wouldn't it? We'd paint it nicely, we'd have everything okay, but it just isn't. Nobody agrees with us. It just isn't that way. So the provocations are innumerable. And if we don't do something about what's in here, it's never going to change. So the first thing that we can look at is the purification system which is embedded in the Buddha's teaching. And one of the very important formulas goes like this. And if you remember nothing from this evening except this formula and then actually try it, you'll see that it's extremely helpful. Nothing could be more helpful in one's own life. The formula goes like this. Not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. Not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen. To make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. To make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen. Sounds like a lot of words, doesn't it? What it means is, if anything negative arises in the mind, see it for what it is, a creator of your own unhappiness. It's got nothing to do with the world out there. Everybody sees it differently. And anything negative isn't worth carrying around with one. The minute it has arisen, substitute with something which is positive. Now, you know maybe that the expression of the book, The Power of Positive Thinking, it is powerful, powerful for oneself. It creates a base which is unshakable in the end. But that does not mean that we forget to discriminate, that we can no longer discriminate between what's right and what's wrong. That would be dreadful. We would all do things which are objectionable. It doesn't mean no discrimination. But it means that we don't like the crime, but we don't hate the criminal. We recognize what's right and what's wrong, but we don't learn not to have the negativity in the mind. So in the first instance, not to let an unwholesome thought arise, which has not yet arisen, is pretty difficult. Try it sometime. One doesn't know the thing is coming. It gets a hold of one before one has even known that there was something. The, re the way to know that it is coming is it sends an unpleasant feeling ahead of it. 
a feeling of heaviness, fogginess, a feeling of um, unpleasantness. Sometimes we say oh, it must be the weather. There's a, there's a storm coming. But actually what's happening inside are some unwholesome thinking in the offing. And in this case, when we say it must be a storm coming, we blame the weather. At least it's neutral. The weather isn't going to say anything. It's just going to be. But if we blame the person we live with for this unpleasant feeling that's coming, it's a different story, isn't it? That person may say something back. So instead of thinking there's something to blame or something is causing all this, this unpleasant feeling is nothing but a warning that a negative thought is arising. At that moment, it is possible with training to change to a positive one. Substitution. When it has already arisen, we can see that it isn't making us happy. And then it is very helpful to tell oneself that one is a fool to make oneself unhappy. If one has enough self-honesty, this is a very effective way of dealing with oneself. Why should one make oneself unhappy? Just through one thinking process. It's the only way other than emotions that we can make ourselves happy or unhappy. That's what we're doing constantly. So if we actually have a wholesome thought already, something positive, we should keep it. But if it isn't there, we can make it deliberately arise. Now this means that we no longer take our thinking for granted. We have learned through practice, and I'll give you the details of the practice of how to learn that also, that our thinking is totally arbitrary and it's totally individual. What one person likes, another person doesn't like at all. So we don't take it for a given anymore, but we realize we can change it to where it is actually beneficial to our inner being. And the second thing are our emotions. And there the Buddha was quite clear what to do. Now you had four things to do about the thinking. Now there's four things to do about the emotions. To have only the four that are worthwhile having. Loving kindness, compassion, joy with others, and equanimity. And the Buddha said there's nothing else as far as in our emotional makeup that is worthwhile having or keeping. Only those four. Now we'll have a look at the first one for a few moments because that's the one which is most important, most difficult, most misunderstood. In Pali it's called metta, M-E-T-T-A, and we translate it as loving-kindness. Although that word itself is not something that we use a great deal in our language, so I'm going to call it love because it's much more common to be used and it arouses in everybody something. What does it mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean what we think it does. What we think it means is that we have one or two 
or maybe three or four, whatever many kids there are in the house, people that we love. And that's it. And that we've got to keep them and hold them. And should they get lost, that's a tragedy. They can get lost through death. They can get lost through moving away. And they can get lost because they change their mind. But because we know that, nobody is immune to that. Everybody knows that this is a possibility. This kind of love is always imbued with fear, fear of loss. And this fear, fear can only be generated through hate. We can only fear what we hate. We can't fear what we love. Now, it doesn't mean that we hate those people. What we hate is the idea of losing them. So we have a totally impure situation. And that's why it's so difficult to have really peaceful, really loving, really steady relationships where both people feel completely at ease because of this fearfulness that it may not continue. Obviously, that can't be true love because it has with it its near enemy and the near enemy is attachment. The far enemy is of course hate, that's easy to see. The near enemy is attachment, hanging on. Now this hanging on, this attachment, is that which does not permit us to grow. If I should be attached to this chair here, glued on, I can't even go home, can I? I'm stuck. Well, that's the same with all attachments. We're stuck. And because we're stuck, we also have to take measures to make that being stuck somehow feasible, plausible. So we have to adjust ourselves to that situation somehow. Now, this is not to mean that we shouldn't love those one, two, or three, or four people. But what it means is that we should use that love as a seedbed for understanding that love is a quality of the heart and has nothing to do with who is there. And use that beginning this, what we know about this love, to make that quality in ourselves grow and develop to the point where our heart can do nothing else because it has that as its own feeling within. When that has happened, now this is an ideal of course, when that has happened, there can also be no fear because we know from that moment on that we're going to react with love no matter what somebody else is doing. And when we know we're going to react like that, we don't have to be fearful what somebody else is going to say, do, or think of us. We're going to love them anyway. The Buddha's explanation of that quality is that it is a growing process of the heart totally independent of whether there's anybody there who would like to be loved, who's going to love us back, who is lovable. 
If we take a moment to think, are we that lovable? How are we going to find somebody who is 100% lovable? Are there such people? If they are, where do we find them? So we don't discriminate and don't make our heart like a foreign country where only those that have the right credentials, the passport or the residence visa are allowed to enter, but make it the open door where beings can all be entered and all be taken care of. The more love we give away, the more we've got. This is a law of nature. And that applies to everything, but nobody believes it. With love, everybody believes it, but they don't do it, but they believe it at least. But it applies to everything. The more one gives away, the more one has. Because what we hang on to and try to keep limits us and contracts us. What we give away opens up and makes it a totality. These are the the, the four, the next one is compassion. These four emotions are called in Pali Brahma Viharas, which in literal translation is divine abidings, but that isn't uh, interesting. But what it means is that if we have those four emotions as our main support for our emotional life, we have actually heaven on earth because heaven is in here, not up there. That's the sky. That's not heaven. Heaven is in here. But in the same place, there's also hell. And the teaching that we can practice shows us the way out of hell into heaven, all in here. Compassion is a feeling which is based on understanding one's own difficulties, one's own suffering. Having understood it, also having found a way to deal with it productively. It's far enemy's cruelty, it's near enemy's pity, not pitying someone else. Compassion, com means with, with feeling, empathy. Because of knowing one's own suffering, we understand that everybody else has it too, whether they know it or not. No matter what we call it, some people have physical, some have emotional, some have mental, it doesn't matter. Some don't like this, some don't like that. Everybody's got something. And because of having seen that in ourselves and having compassion for ourselves, because we recognize and realize that it's difficult to be a human being, it's not just done. To lead a good life as a human being is difficult. And to deal with one's difficulties is also takes training. So we have compassion for everyone. And this is a teaching and the learning situation. In the beginning, we'll have to deal with those that are right around us. We start with those people that are near to us physically. And as we can manage that, 
our heart will grow in its capacity to give. And this is one of the aspects which is very important in this teaching, in any spiritual teaching, that the giving is far more important than the getting. That must sound familiar. And as we give away, whatever it may be, love, compassion, our helpfulness, our care, our concern, things, money, whatever it may be, as we give it away, we embrace mankind as our family and we embrace the effect, the fact that we're all in it together. And because we are giving, we are not wanting something. And that keeps us out of having any kind of suffering. The Buddha's teaching, the first two noble truths are that there is suffering in the world, but it has only one cause. Now that's nice and easy, isn't it? Just one cause. Just get away from that cause and no more suffering. That cause is craving, wanting. Whenever we want something, we are not contented. We're not at peace. When we're giving, obviously we don't want anything. If we don't want to look for gratitude, if we don't, if we're not looking for results from our giving, we're just giving. And then at that time, there is no difficulty because there's no suffering from wanting something. Many people notice that when they do things for others. And this can become a way to base our emotions on because it is a compassionate way. And from compassion, we also have the ability to encourage, cultivate, and develop this unconditional love. And that's what metta means, unconditional love. We make no conditions. It's just our own heart. And why should we do that? Because we get peace and happiness from it. The whole thing is for our own upliftment, for our own peace and happiness. That others will have some peace and happiness from that. That's a second effect. If we are loving, certainly those people who come in contact with us will notice it and will be drawn to that. But the one who has the greatest benefit is the one who's got the love in his or her heart. Now, one more word about what to do about it, how to do these things. First of all, of course, in daily living, to watch one's thoughts and to watch one's emotions. In Buddhist terminology, that's called mindfulness. All of us have mindfulness. If we didn't, we would get run over by the first car that comes along. We would never be able to dial the phone properly. We'd cut off our fingers when peeling potatoes. We have enough mindfulness to survive, and that's where it stops because we haven't really taken hold of the idea that survival is a lost cause. None of us are going to make it. And that's a guarantee. If we only live for that, 
we're living in vain. We can't make it. So the thing to do is to use mindfulness, which we all have, for a little more than that, for introspection, for watching oneself, to become aware of what goes on within. The formula for that is recognition, no blame, change. And the change which takes place is not a forced change, but it's a substitution from that which makes us unhappy to that which makes us happy. And as we do it once or twice, we get a real self-confidence from it that we don't have to have input from outside to make us happy. We can do it ourselves. So the first way, or the first how-to, is introspection as it is applicable and practical. Obviously, it's not always applicable to watch one's emotions. Sometimes one has to watch one's steps so that one doesn't step into a puddle. But many times it is applicable. And sometimes it's very important to watch one's thoughts and realize that they are designed to bring unhappiness. So that's one thing. But how do we learn mindfulness which goes beyond survival mindfulness, which we all have? The path the Buddha described is meditation. Now, meditation is a skill which has to be learned. One doesn't just sit down and do it. One, one can try it. Well, there are methods. And at the end, when we finish, I will do 10 minutes of meditation with you, a guided meditation, so that you get an idea of something of it anyway. There are many methods. The Buddha himself taught 40 methods but a method is a method by any name it's not the meditation itself it's only the method to get there it's a skill we have to learn it like any other skill like sewing on the sewing machine like typing on a typewriter it all takes time some people can learn it quickly others take a long time but the very interesting aspect is that we have immediate benefits even when the skill has not been developed yet properly. The first benefit we have is that we get to know our own mind patterns and mind habits by labeling them. And because we get to know them, we can see that a lot of what we're thinking is totally unnecessary, useless, and only future and past. It's got nothing to do with this present moment. And we learn from that that this present moment is actually the only one we can live. The past is long gone. The future is yet to come. When the future arrives, it's always called the present. It never arrives. It's all conjecture. When tomorrow actually happens, it's always called today. So we can see then, we have an immediate insight into our own thinking patterns. We get to learn our, get to know our hates, our dislikes. And that, we then substitute with the meditation subject so we learn the skill of substituting. And as we learn the skill of substituting, we use that in everyday life, substituting the unwholesome, the negative with the positive. That's the first complete benefit we get. The other benefit we get is that even one second of concentration, which everybody can do, 
is one second of purification because at that time it's impossible to have any negativity so we have an inbuilt purification system so we have those two immediate benefits we also have another one the intention to meditate is a good one and we have therefore already a good intention whether it's going to work out or not well we don't know yet but that good intention has to have good results because the teaching of the Buddha teaches cause and effect what we cause to happen will have an effect and we can see that in our own lives if we take the trouble to check that out mindfulness means that we learn to be in this moment which we have to do when we meditate we are usually using the breath as a meditation subject we cannot watch a breath which is already gone nor can we watch one which has not yet come we can only watch this one that we are actually breathing and therefore we learn to be in the moment right then and there and as we learn to know our mind states we learn to be introspective and the meditative mind is a mind which can stay introspective in the midst of the greatest agitation around it it doesn't have to get agitated with it that skill through the meditation teaches of us not only to get to know ourselves not only the mindfulness which will then help us to know what's going on within but it goes much further it to- teaches us other states of consciousness that we no longer need to think that this ordinary consciousness that we have with which we go shopping with which we go to the bank with which we like and dislike with which we talk about the weather that that's the only consciousness there is there is far more to us than that we have a potential which hasn't even been tapped yet we know of our technological potential but this is not so this is spiritual potential the technology has run away with us spirituality is limping behind we've got at least that much potential if not more than what we have seen happen in the last 50 years on the technological level we have levels of consciousness which we can touch where we actually know ourselves to be part and parcel of the whole where the whole of creation and we ourselves are no longer a part this is only one state of consciousness in the beginning we learn mindfulness knowing what's going on within and actually getting a purification going which we would otherwise not have had if we hadn't started to meditate before we do a bit of meditation together you're supposed to ask some questions because this is a discussion group i was told so please discuss I'm sorry this is one thing that I should have mentioned uh, in my introduction and that is questions we must have questions you must have questions there must be is inevitable here's the lady here the expert 
Well, as a matter of fact, I, I made uh, two notes of, uh, of things that were said. To deal with yes. life is difficult. Mm. But then, the more love you give, the more you get, which surely would ease the life, or simplify it. Yes. Mm. Uh, you doubtless uh, must have got some inkling of what this is all about. I think it's quite astonishing. It's, it's been a, a wonderful talk. And uh, in spite of the fact, as, as Pam said, it's, um, uh, it, was, it was the questions and answers all together there. But uh, I know that Akemi um, would be very, very pleased if you had got any questions. Mm, I just wonder about one thing. Is, uh, we do... Uh, as we learn from you and become more happy and become more positive and, and uh, uh, giving the love. Well, that with the other members in the household, you were saying there was, there was the kids and, and you know, the husband and wife and, and other people. Uh, would there be a definite having to teach this or will, because of the giving and the love and your example, the, the, the rule of, of uh, thumb in the, uh, uh, the mm. uh, behaviour of the children and the other people in the house? Yes, uh, that would uh, definitely happen. You see, it is sometimes and often not even necessary to say anything. If somebody walks into a room and doesn't say a word, and sits down on a chair and takes out the newspaper, you can tell very well whether that person is very angry at that time or totally calm and at ease. He doesn't have to say anything. Actual fact, the, uh, the same, you may say, soul or whatever you like to call it, the same spirit, the same mind, has been coming back over and over again. And we come back with that what we have sown. As you sow, you will reap. Now, it isn't us personally. There's not, no, it's never again the same person. And the, uh, the former person is not the same person. But there is a karmic link, and that's all. Otherwise, it would be impossible to understand why some people are born in a very comfortable home where everything is fine, where the child is looked after to the nth degree, and thousands, millions of children are born that are never getting enough to eat. Why is that? What is happening? Is it a, is it a, a, a game of dice or what is it? How the dice fell? It is the law of as you sow you will reap. And this is something that we need to take into account in our daily lives. But it's not something that I wanted to put into the talk because that will take at least another hour and a half to describe. <laughs> but this is a short answer to that. Oh, just love it. <laughs> yes. Uh, I understand about the karma bit. But, um, if one is never the same person again, 
represents another personality which is sleeping in the karma. Mm-hmm. Does this relate to the oversoul? The oversoul. Hmm. I'm sorry, I don't know what an oversoul is. Well, I'm thinking back to some uh, conversation that we had in a group meeting last night mm-hmm. in which Sid uh, found it difficult to understand how karma could be um, relating to a person if that person didn't come back as that person but as Oh, okay. All right, I, I can, that I can answer, but with the oversoul, I don't know what that is. Um, you see, we are living in an illusion, and the Buddha called it a dream. Now, some people dream at night and can remember in the morning what they have dreamt. Huh? Um, and during the dream, it all seemed quite real. It's very sometimes quite frightening, and uh, you fall off a cliff, and it's all terrible, and uh, sometimes it may be nice. And in the morning, when you think back and you remember that, you know the whole thing was just a dream. It didn't matter at all. Well, this is exactly what's happening to us, only we think we're awake. But while we're dreaming at night, we also think we're awake. We're actually falling off that cliff, and it's really frightening. And we're trying to hang on and nothing happens. And in the morning we know, well, it's all nonsense. You know, it was just a dream. But this is what we're doing also here now. So we're thinking of ourselves as a person with a certain um, identity and entity. And in reality, that's not the case. Now, it would go too far to go any further in that description. But this is not the case. And because it's not the case, it doesn't matter who is there last time, whom we can't remember anyway, and who is going to be there next time, whom we don't know about. All that matters is who is here now. But we do bring with us certain karmic propensities. That can't be helped. But most of the karma we're making now. So a child that is born uh, as a mongoloid child has, and I have worked with retarded children at one stage in my life, has an enormous capacity for love. They are quite remarkable in that respect. And that is what they'll be giving this time around. And of course, if they're in a good family, the family will love them also. And this kind of actual work that I've been describing will not be possible for that child this time or that person is not always going to be a child for that person this time but there's a next time and it's not an individual and an entity anyway it's a process but that is the end and the goal of the practice it's called in Pali Anatta in another uh, way it's called Sunyata and it is the most difficult thing to understand and everything in the practice leads to that but it takes a little while. Is that clear at all? There's an implication here that you don't accept survival of the individual through death. I don't accept survival of the individual through death. What does that mean? Survival of the individual through death. Well, everybody dies. Do they go on as themselves or what? Oh, well, no. You see, the, the, the premise you're basing this on is wrong. You've got the wrong premise, so you can't come to the right answer. 
you're basing it on the premise that this is an individual now. That's exactly what it isn't. But there's no way to explain that under such circumstances as here. That's got to be practiced. The premise is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> How should one treat a negative person? Uh, more than usual negative? Very negative. Yes, because most people are both, you know, positive and negative. But this one is more negative than ordinary. Yes. yes. Well, it's difficult. <laughs> the The thing is that you don't treat that person. You try start treating yourself. What you do is you learn more and more positivity in yourself, more and more love, more and more compassion. And as you learn that, you're less and less affected by the negativity because you have compassion instead of reaction. And eventually, if the person is not too far gone, it may make an impression. There's no guarantee, but it may make an impression. Some people, of course, are too far gone. You know. Hmm? Do you have any recommendations for the amount of time one spends meditating then? It depends whether you're a beginner or whether you're skilled. Whether you're skilled, there's no end to it. But if you're a beginner, 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes in the evening. Well, um, young compared to us, I know. Yes. <laughs> um, and they were arguing there was no unconditional love, that love is always conditional. Now, I couldn't agree with that, but I couldn't get my point across to this young person. Uh, what have you got to tell us about conditional love? Conditional well, what did that person mean with conditional love? Does they he mean... Oh, I see. How could it be a happy marriage if there were conditions on the on the loving? You know, I couldn't. Oh, I see. How could it be a happy marriage if there were conditions put on the on the loving? You know, how you love uh, the, the child or, or, or the grandparent or, or mm. the wife or the husband? Sounds a bit new age, doesn't it? Mm. I'm, I'm I'm not too familiar with that kind of thinking, but the. Um, I mean, there are two ways of looking at the word conditional and unconditional. I think I know which way you're looking at it. The, the unconditional love, which I have mentioned, I've actually used the word, means that one knows that it's for one's own benefit to develop and cultivate one's heart to the point where it has loving quality in it, quite apart from anything that's happening outside, and one is totally safe then. But if one has that, what most people have, I would say 99.8% of the whole human race, or even more, more, I don't know, I haven't counted it, that is, love is only something which is offered as a return to love that one gets. In other words, it's a marketplace uh, commodity which has to be paid for in kind. Well, that's certainly not love, is it? I mean, that's a marketplace mentality. And that's how the world goes from bad to worse. No, I don't think so. That's right. I think it just stays worse. That's all. <laughs> yes. Um, I 
<laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I like that. Um, and, well, no, you don't just make yourself feel good. You make yourself feel good in order to practice. And the practice that you do uh, contains generosity. And generosity means giving oneself wholeheartedly to humanity, whatever part of humanity one can get at. You know, there's very few people who can have the whole of humanity uh, to give something to. Um, so that's part of it. And the scope for reform, uh, yes, there are several ways of thinking about it in Buddhism. Now, I'll first give you the one that the Buddha used and that I ascribe to, okay? The reform is to make people think and feel differently so that love and compassion and positive thinking is their base of operation so that they become ambassadors of peace on this war-torn planet. Did you realize that we've had 102 wars since 1945? Wonderful, isn't it? Yes, so that is the reform which the Buddha had in mind, which I ascribe to and that is the reason why I've been teaching this sort of thing, uh, at, of course, also more intensely in, in courses for the past 16 and a half years. That's one way. There is also a social Buddhism, of, yes, I think that's what they call it, social, social Buddhism, yes, where there is actually the um, activity um, emphasized of um, helping people in refugee camps, uh, looking after new immigrants, uh, um, looking after sick people, that type of thing. That's now social, social action. But the reform is strictly, I would say the word reform would indicate change. And that's this. This teaching is the reform movement of Buddhism. And the Buddha himself was a reformer, like, just like Jesus. Jesus was a reformer because he realized that Judaism was going down the drains. He threw the money changers out of the temple, quite rightly so, they didn't belong there. The Buddha did exactly the same. He didn't throw the money changers out, but he told the people that it was useless to um, throw milk and ghee over stone gods expecting to get to heaven that way. This was his reform movement. He was born into the Brahminical religion, just like Jesus was born into the Jewish religion, and both tried to reform their religions, and in the process, a new one uh, got established, which is usually what happens, but it was neither of their intentions. So the Buddha's reform is quite definite, to change people's hearts and minds. No, I wouldn't agree with that at all. Uh, the basic problem in we have in this world is our ego illusion. Our ego illusion. It's my religion. It's my path. Uh, I know. I'm going to do. That's the problem. The religion is such. All the great religions teach exactly the same things. And um, the, um, I have um, personally made a study 
of the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages, not all of them, mind you. Please don't think that I've now studied all of them. I've studied some of them um, quite intensely because um, I have a center in Germany in a very Catholic area, and all around me are only Catholics. So I wanted, was wanted to find out whether there was this also, the same that we teach, and uh, because they come to my teaching. And in the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages, Meister Eckhart and um, Teresa de Avila, Francisco de Osuna, um, Jacob Böhme, he's a little later, um, one finds exactly the same thing that the Buddha said. Meister Eckhart says something which is extremely interesting. He said, God only exists because a creature exists, but behind God there's a Godhead, and that has nothing to do with anyone knowing it. Now, that, of course, the church was ready to burn him for that. He escaped that for, because he had good connections, I think. Um, but it is exactly that what the Buddha teaches. Not using those words at all. Behind all this is Nibbana, the source of being. And uh, it all comes together at the same point. So the religions are not wrong. We are wrong. We haven't actually done what the masters have told us to do and we've not actually understood what they said. And it is difficult to understand, of course. It takes time, it takes years, it takes dedication, it takes determination, and it takes an understanding of the fact that uh, suffering is not going to go away. Something else has to go away. The jack-in-the-box. Hmm? Yes? That the children are dying? Hmm. No, it's not like that at all. National karma doesn't exist. It's all personal karma. But because of having made a certain karma, you get born in a certain country. So having got born in Australia, you must have made good karma. <laughs> Rather than being born in the Sahara Desert. <laughs> Yes. Why is that not possible? I don't understand the one goal. We've only got one what? The goal is unified. The goal, uh, yes, yeah, okay. That's one thing, for different people, different methods, absolutely. But also there are two ways one has to learn, calm and insight. And some methods are more conducive to calm, some are more conducive to insight. I don't think we're going to get through with all that this evening. But i tell you what you can do if you really want to know. <laughs> Every Wednesday night I'm giving a meditation class in Mosswell at 17 Kings Road in a private house which is very huge so there's lots of room the first lesson was this Wednesday day before yesterday and there were 48 people there so you can see there was a, a lot of room in that house 
and they're very happy to have more. And uh, that's every Wednesday night, 17 Kings Road, Mosswell, at 7 o'clock, from 7 to 9. And I teach meditation and I explain meditation. And as we will be going for eight weeks, we've only had one lesson so far. So in those eight weeks, which means eight times, um, I'll have a chance to explain a little more. It does take time to explain it all. I've got to pick out a few things to explain, huh? So if you like to come, you're very welcome. It's free of charge. So, And the people there are very kind, uh, the owners of the house. They even give you tea and bickies afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? Yes. I didn't hear that. What is the herb? Yeah. A herb that Buddhist people starts with an age. You've got me completely stymied. I have no idea. I can't think of a thing. <laughs> what was the answer? Oh, you don't know. Herb. I can't think of any herb that starts with an H. Anybody think of something? Hyssop. All right, let's say hyssop. I have no idea. But I mean, does it have any 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 particular qualities? But I have never heard of any particular herb that would have anything to do with Buddhism. The Buddha took great pains that this was not going to be a food religion. He refused anything about that, everything. So it, 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 it's not a valid question, I don't think. Certainly, yes. Yes. The Buddha made no rules about food. But that's, of course, your own choice. Choice. I mean, you make your own choices there. But he didn't make any rules like that. He certainly made the rule not to kill, and that's about all you get in Christianity. Jesus didn't say not to eat it. He said not to kill. Same thing with the Buddha said. No difference. The whole thing goes along the same lines, but one has to do it. And this is the, the thing I said at the beginning, and I'll just repeat it now. It's all very nice and very interesting, but we've got to swallow it which means we've got to do it. If there is any help for ourselves, for our own happiness, for our own peacefulness, any help for peace in the world, we've got to do it. Each single person that becomes peaceful and has inner joy and inner contentment is an one person that can spread peace around him or her. Anyone who is anxious, Fearful, angry, spread that. Obviously, we've got more of the second kind. Otherwise, we wouldn't have so many wars. If we'd like to do something about it, that's what we can do. Our own inner life is the starting point for it all. So I've... Um, now, if you're meditating on a chair, there's a certain way to sit. Put your feet down solidly on the ground. Don't cross your legs. 
And if you can sit without putting your back against the backrest, it's so much better. You sit with a straight back, but relaxed. Relax the shoulders. You can lift them up and let them fall. Relax the neck. Relax the stomach. Put the hands together in the lap, left on right, or on your knees, whatever you prefer. Close the eyes. And for just a few moments, watch how the breath goes in and out of the nostrils. And love this breath, because it means your life. Without it, none of us would be alive. Give it some love. Don't take it for granted. Just watch it a moment and love it. And now imagine that you have a beautiful white lotus flower growing in your heart which opens all its petals until it's fully open and a golden stream of light comes out of the center of that lotus flower and that golden stream of light fills you from head to toe with warmth and love and joy and contentment and it surrounds you with a feeling and a sense of being peaceful be completely filled and surrounded by these feelings of love and warmth and joy and peacefulness. And now let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to the person sitting nearest you in this hall <coughs> and fill him or her with the warmth from your heart, with love and joy and surround him or her with peace. And now open your heart wider. Let the golden stream of light increase and fill everyone here with the warmth from your heart, your love, joy, surround everyone 
with that golden stream of light giving peace as a gift from you the best your heart can give Think of your parents, whether they're still alive or not. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to their hearts with your love and gratitude and devotion, filling them from head to toe with the warmth from your heart, surrounding them with being peaceful. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you and let the golden stream of light from your heart reach out to them, filling them from head to toe with warmth and love and joy, embracing them with peace. Without expecting to get the same in return, Now think of all your good friends and let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to all of them, filling them from head to toe with the depths of your friendship, with your love. Surround them with peacefulness. not expecting to get the same in return.
Now think of all the people who are part of your life, your neighbors, and people at work, people in the shops, on the street, acquaintances, relations, anyone who comes into your life. Open up your heart wide enough so that the golden stream of light can reach all of them, bringing them your love, joy and peace, giving them the best your heart can give. Think of anyone in your life whom you may find difficult or whom you don't like or towards whom you're totally indifferent. And let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to that person too so that there's no blockage in your own heart. Fill him or her with forgiveness with love, with compassion. Now open your heart as wide as you can and let this golden stream of light flow out of it like a river carrying your love, your warmth, your joy and your peacefulness to people near and far. First to those that are near here in this town then to the surrounding towns. Let this golden stream carrying love and peace go into the houses, into the hearts. Further afield to the big cities, to the villages, to the people on the land. Letting it flood with love and peace over the whole of the country. And further afield across the oceans to all the peoples and all the countries, wherever it may reach.
carrying the goodness from your heart to as many people as possible. Now put your attention back on yourself and feel the joy and peacefulness which comes from loving and giving. Let the golden stream of light fill you from head to toe with a sense of well-being and surround you with love and compassion. And now let the golden stream of light go back inside the lotus flower, which closes its petals. And then anchor the beautiful flower in your heart so that it may become one with it. May beings everywhere have love and peace in their heart. 